Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. In this episode, we're going to start right where we left off, which was LLVM-CXXDump. And I resolved to get through the rest of LLVM in this very episode. So some of the information may be a little bit light on some of these commands, but I think we're kind of getting the hang of LLVM in general, especially combined with our knowledge of GCC that if you haven't heard the previous episodes on GCC, you can go back and listen to those. Combined, I'm feeling like we pretty much get a pretty good idea of of how this compiler ecosystem works, so I'm not going to spend too much more time on LLVM, I don't think. Now, first up is LLVM-CXXDump. As you can imagine from the name, it dumps information about a C++ application. So I've got a very simple C++ application here called primes.cpp, which calculates a bunch of prime numbers. I think it's an infinite loop, if I recall correctly. And if I do a clang++ on primes.cpp, uh, I, might, I guess I might as well do out, uh, dash O for output primes. I now have a, a little application called primes on my computer. And if I do llvm-cxx, dump on primes, and that prints the data contained within that C++ generated binary. Things like the f number of flags, uh, things like the virtual base pointer offset being negative one, the virtual base adjustment offset being zero, and, and so on. I don't see this application listed in the modern uh, edition of LLVM. It's, it's nowhere that I could find on their website in terms of documentation, so maybe this has been phased out. I'm not sure. LLVM diff. It seems like it would be a diff program from the name, and indeed it is, but it's not a diff like you see in your text file toolchains. This is a diff for the assembly code of LLVM. So in order to get that to produce useful output, you need two assembly code, or well, you need two LLVM modules that are different in some way. And if it's .ll, then it understands that assembly. If it's something else, then it'll understand that and put out put out output diff, uh, a diff for that. But it, it's easy for me to produce a .ll just based on the previous episode. We can pretty simply do a clang dash capital S dash emit dash llvm hello.c, which produces hello.ll, which I'm going to rename immediately to hello.old.ll. And then I'll open up hello, the source code, or not hello, hello.c, the source code, and I'll add a couple of lines. So I'm going to do a printf hello world, hello GNU world order, and then printf, I don't know, percent D backslash in close quote comma 12. It's completely arbitrary. Clang dash s emit dash llvm hello dot c produces a new hello dot ll. Now if I do an llvm dash diff on hello dash old dot ll and hello dot ll, just like a normal diff program, you give one and then the other hit return. In function main, it says in block percent zero, percent zero, uh, we've got a percent three equals call i32 i8 dot 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 at printf i8 get element ptr inbounds 23 i8, 23 i8, as opposed to the, that's the old uh, version, then the new version is percent four uh, at printf i8 get element ptr inbounds 4 i8, 4 i8. Huge difference, no idea what any of that means, but that's what this does. So obviously if you need a diff um, of of LLVM modules to see what's changed or what's different, this is the tool for you. Um, it seems like a really, really useful thing, I just unfortunately don't have the background to really quite understand uh, how to read the output myself. So LL 
vm-dis does an l it's a conversion or it's a trans well not, not a transpiler it, it it compiles llvm uh, dot bc which is the bitcode uh it disassembles the the dot bc files so i think i still have a bc file here no i don't i deleted the bc file from the previous episode it looks like do i have one hidden away anywhere no i deleted it that's fine i can make a new one so the dot bc file you'll recall is the um the the potential well it it's eventually the pro- the product of a hello like a, a .ll file uh which you can produce with llvm-as llvm-as hello uh, let's do yeah no let's do hello.ll and that should have created a hello.bc it has so now if i do an llvm dis so symbol uh hello.bc oh i don't know what kind of file that made it probably just overwrote the old hello.ll. So I'm going to, um, let's find out if there's an output flag. There is. There's a dash O f- to override the output. So I'm going to do LLVM dash dis hello.bc dash O foo. Now, if I look in my directory, I see a foo file. And if I cat that foo f- file, um, I get pretty much the same output as I would if I were to just cat hello.ll. Indeed, I do. In fact, we could, I guess, even do an LLVM diff on hello.ll and foo, and there's no difference whatsoever. Oh, wait, that's because there there literally is no difference. They were both the output of, of that command, weren't they? But you get the idea. Like, it, it's the same .ll as, as a .ll from the source code. And I've verified that, and you can verify that on your own as well. It's pretty easy. Whether that's always true, I don't know. Like, as as applications get more complex, would there ever be any difference? I, I don't know. It's an interesting uh, thing. I, I, I wouldn't think so, but, you know, com- computer programming and, and disassembling and stuff like that, it can, it can be a little bit surprising sometimes. Okay, so the next one is LLVM uh, DSIMUtil which is a tool to, uh, let me see if it's in the modern one, yes it is, tool to manipulate archived dwarf debug information found in object files for an executable uh, by using the debug symbols information contained in the symbol table. By default, the linked debug information is placed in a .dsym bundle with the same name as the executable. So this is pretty interesting. The dsymutil, the dwarf dump, and dwp. So that's the one, two, three, next three commands in the list. They're kind of interesting, and I don't think really trying to do some kind of demo with them would be very useful. Um, it's it, it would be interesting if I had something really good to show, but I don't. I, I could probably generate output, but I don't. I don't feel like it would be super informative. But the the concept is actually quite quite an interesting read. You can look more up about it on both, uh, you know, certainly Wikipedia, which gives you a good general overview. But you can also go to gcc.gnu.org/wiki/debugfission/dwp. What it's all about is is this dwarf package f- uh, file format and the concept of dwarf files as opposed to elf files, which I can only assume were created around the same time uh, because that seems really, really clever. So an elf format, of course, uh, as we have learned in previous episodes, uh, is the executable file format on Linux. If you do a file and then point it at some executable, you're going to find out that you've got an elf binary, 64-bit probably, whatever, whatever. Dwarf is a method to abstract debug information, essentially, and and pardon me if I'm not being exactly correct here, because I've never done this before, but um, Dwarf, from what I can tell, is this way to kind of take debug symbols and put them into their own place, to put them away from the application. And you'll recall in episodes past, we've talked about how sometimes when you're debugging an application or when you're filing a bug and they ask for debug information on some distributions, you have to go out and grab the debug packages specifically. Sometimes they're in a completely different repository. You grab those, and and those kind of work with your application. Now, I don't know for sure that those are dwarf packages. I have no idea. I haven't looked at them. But that's the the sort of a theory here, that that you can have the, the useful debug symbols in a separate package entirely, 
and they can work with your, in this case, ELF executable to produce useful debugging information. This is not something entirely, this isn't limited to Linux. Um, there, you can use the Dwarf debugging stuff on at least Darwin, but Wikipedia suggests possibly even Microsoft, so I'm not 100% sure how that works, but for uh, Darwin through LLVM, well, like, maybe that's how it works on Microsoft too, just through LLVM. On, uh, on, on Darwin, anyway, you can, uh, apparently the, the file format for dwarf, uh, packages are dot, uh, DSYM, debug symbols, I guess, DSYM, and that's sort of a hint as to why LLVM-DSIMUtil is called DSIMUtil. It's a utility for DSIM files, so I don't feel like that particular tool is probably very useful to a Linux user. I could be mistaken. I could be sort of reading all of this wrong, but I, I, I think that would be more useful, I would imagine, maybe for someone else. LLVM-dwarf dump is a lot like CXX dump, except it does that for dwarf files. And then DWP is a uh, kind of a hybrid tool, which is described here um, in the, G the GCC terms on the link that I'll put in the show notes, gcc.gnu.org slash wiki slash debug fusion, uh, debug fission DWP. I don't know how useful that quick overview actually was, but I feel like it's a, it, it's a really interesting broad overview, I think. I mean, even if you, if, if you go read those URLs or not, just kind of the, the knowledge that this kind of technology exists is pretty, pretty, pretty cool, I think. There, there's a lot of subtleties that I think a lot of users don't really even realize are possible uh, with an executable. I mean, to, to most of us, executables are just magical things. Um, and when you first start on your, when you're first starting out on a computer, they're just magical pictures on your desktop that you double click and they, they make cool things happen. Uh, and then if you get a little bit deeper into it, maybe you understand, well, it's just, it's actually a file and it's been compiled down into this thing and it's like a machine language or something and it flips little switches, electronic switches on, on this silicon thing somehow and the, the way that they're flipped makes electricity flow differently and so on. And it kind of starts to sort of make sense, but to realize that, that you can like take debugging symbols that are attached to the symbols embedded in, an, in, in this compiled binary, and that you can see those symbols with, with tools that, that are designed to, to look that deeply into binaries, it, it, it gets very, very cool very, very quickly. Next up, let's do LLVM-extract. Okay, and I'm going to do, do a little rapid fire here because a lot of this is starting to become pretty repetitive, all, although some of it's also just not working. So there's LLVM extract. Seems really cool. It's supposed to t uh, extract functions from uh, bitcode. So every time I use it, LLVM extract, uh, hello.bc, it warns me that I'm trying to print out a bitcode file and that that could be detrimental to the display of my terminal. Um, it's an easy fix, you type in reset, but either way, I don't feel like that's actually the correct... I feel like the, the purpose of the tool states that it's going to extract a function from a bitcode file. It, it does tell me that uh, in some cases, if I feed it like a .ll file, it, it tells me that I need to provide a function name, and then I try that and it gives me that same error again. So, not sure what's going on with LLVM extract. It does seem like it's a modern tool, but I wonder if uh, the implementation that I'm trying isn't the latest. I'm not sure. But the um, next one from down from that is LLVM-link. That's the linker for LLVM. So if you listened to the GCC episodes, you are familiar with the linking process. I did a big, long command that links things more or less manually. Not exactly, but gets sort of around that neighborhood. LLVM-LTO is the link time optimizer, and so that that's that optimizes the the linking process. LLVM-MC is something like uh, what is it? Machine code, I think, or, or yeah, machine code, I think, is what that stands for. Really, really fascinating uh, tool to read about. It is if you go to the um, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but there's an introduction from way back in 2010 to this tool, LLVMC. And it does, I mean, it does everything 
that you would kind of expect, I guess, at this point from LLVM tools. You know, it, it assembles, it disassembles, it um, processes, it reverse processes, it does everything. It does it just in time. It does it not just in time. All all of the the flexibility is there, as far as I can tell. I mean, from from kind of reading this blog, LLVM-MC markup. Couldn't find a whole lot of information about this tool. I looked for LLVM again. You know, there's no documentation for this stuff really. I mean, there's some, but not not really. And and for specifically for MC markup, I just could not really find a whole lot of. I could find some an occasional mention that the thing exists in in some uh, sort of logs online, but but was not able to find a whole lot about it. I mean, its help menu says that it is an LLVM MC markup parser, but the, the, the options that it provides are pretty much the standard LLVM options, and it doesn't really give a whole lot of new context. So I'm afraid that's that's all I can say about that one. That's all they, they kind of provide about it, really. LLVM-NM. That's November Mike. This, again, is, is a lot like the GCC version, or I guess it's the GCC version. I'm not sure. But it's it's the one we talked about in previous episodes. It, it lists the names of symbols from LLVM. Bitcode files, object files, and archives. Very, very useful. I, I feel like I had a lot of fun with the GCC version. But um, the LLVM-NM one, as far as I can tell, basically does the same thing. The next couple of commands should also sound relatively familiar. LLVM-objdump, uh, pdbdump, profdata, readobj, rtdyld. Okay, I'll admit, I don't know what that one is. And I'll also admit that I couldn't find out what it was because I went to the search page on LLVM.org typed in RTDYLD, and it came up with zero search results. So LLVMRTDYLD-help. It's an MC just-in-time tool. You would point machine code at to it, and, and it would just-in-time compile it for, for something. I just don't understand why a just-in-time compiler would be necessary for machine code. So a little bit fuzzy on, on sort of the purpose of that, really. And the list goes on. LLVM-size-split-stress-symbolizer-tblgen-modularize-obj2yaml opt-sancove scan build scan view verify use list order and yaml to obj. That's all the LLVM stuff. I feel like I've commented on everything I possibly can comment at this point, and I could go through all of the ones that I've just listed and just mention them by name just so that I've said them all on air. Well, now I have, right? So I think that's it. That That's the LLVM package. I do believe that you get the idea by now. It is a very, very complete compilation tool chain. I feel like for a lot of users, it, it you know, as sort of LLVM, oh, it's it's the other GCC, that works. Like, that's that's as much interaction as maybe you or I may have with it, depending on what you and I get up to. Whereas for other people at, at some other stage in that, in, in the development process, they're going to be able to use it to decompile stuff or to, to, to debug stuff or to to analyze uh, the, the the binaries that they're producing to to do tests and things and, and so on, so it's it's a it's a complete tool chain and that's really really important in 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 any software really. But I mean, you know, especially I guess maybe in open source because I think there's probably an argument here that in open source uh, you, you do have to kind of prove yourself sort of twice as much as the other guy a lot of times. People see Borland compiler or or whatever, and they think well, or Visual Studio, whatever, and and they think, oh my gosh, that's a big professional, like that's that's the the gorilla, that's the one that that everyone's using. It's it's big and bold, and it's got everything. Well, the open source tools need to have everything and then some. And I feel like LLVM. I mean, I'm not saying as opposed to GCC. I'm just saying LLVM as a tool. If you presented that as a development tool, I don't think anyone could argue that it wasn't sufficient. I mean, again, I don't I don't think anyone would argue that about GCC either, but it's just nice to see the open source tooling be this robust and this complete. And almost, in a way, I mean, I, I get from, from some of these these commands, almost an overachiever. Like, that, there's so much here for, for just every little detail. And how great is that if, if, if you're someone doing development and, and you're finding that you have to 
decompile something or, or you want to deconstruct, as it were, a binary that you built that, that ought to work on this architecture, but for a, whatever reason, it's, it's some quirky behavior and you want to, you really want to dig into what exactly is, is contained in that binary after compilation. Well, LLVM will, will let you do that. And that's really, really great. So LLVM is a very cool project. It's very exciting. Lots of binaries, as you can tell. But we're done with it now, and that means that we can move on to the M4 macro package, which is actually really, really exciting. It used to be super scary to me, uh, and then I started playing around with it, and I thought, yeah, this is actually really cool. Not something I'm going to use very often, probably, but it's still... Well, actually, that's not true. I use it all the time. I just let Make and Auto Tools use it, you know, do, do all the work for me. Let's take a coffee break, and then we'll get into the M4 macro package. <laughs> This is a fact. I come back from every coffee break with a cup of coffee, and I, I usually I press record and then I, I take a sip or two of my coffee, and or or maybe pour my coffee from the uh, from the the plunger to the the cup, and I always think to myself on one hand I should leave that in because that's like sounds of coffee consumption and wouldn't that be suitable for the end of a coffee break? But then I I always second guess myself because I think. I don't know how it's going to come across, like in the microphone, after after all the compression and everything else. It might just sound like, um, you know, like no, like like distortion or something like that. So I always cut it out, so you never hear that. But it always it always happens. Okay. Anyway, um, coffee break means listener feedback as well. Remember, that's the new cadence of the show, at least until I forget to do it. And uh, this one, I'm going to pick up m- mid sort of email. Um, with uh, with Hacker Defo, who says that who to- who was tell- telling me about a an interesting sort of screen and Tmux alternative called BYOBU, so Biobu maybe, Biobu.org. I went to the website and it looked interesting. It looked like a sort of a um, I guess sort of a sort of a little bit like Terminator. I guess a little bit of a hybrid between Tmux and Screen, and and just kind of having console or uh, GNOME terminal manage your session for you. So it looked interesting. I did not try it. I have not tried it yet. I, I'm pretty sure I'd, I'd sort of vaguely heard of it before, but I, I have not gotten around to trying it yet. But I did ask him in the email, sort of what's the what what's the selling point? What's the you know, why would I look at this instead of screen or Tmux or just letting console be my 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 uh, session manager? I mean, to be to be fair, uh, screen and Tmux both you know being able to become sort of demonized on on a server is something that console that doesn't that's not really something that console does. So when I say when I'm mentioning console or GNOME ter- terminal or whatever. It's it's more as the sort of the multiplexer, the split screen feature, not not the the daemon process running that you can log back into and rejoin. Anyway, Hacker Defo says it has a cool plugin of sorts that you can be that that can be useful when you are playing a live gig somewhere and want something cool yet meaningless um, on your screen, and it's called Hollywood. And uh, he links to a blog dot dustin kirkland dot com slash twenty fourteen slash twelve slash hollywood-technodrama.html. So that sounds amazing to me. That sounds very amusing and really, really clever because, I mean, you always need something. I mean, even, uh, heck, even at an old job, I just used to just, because I had a lot of screens. So I just kind of felt like, well, I should have something on those screens, you know, for when people walk in and they want to be dazzled by the IT guy's fancy workshop. I mean, something should be going. Now, in the end, to be fair, it actually... It was in the end. It I, I ran 
actual things. Like, I never had to come up with a fake thing. But, you know, it's, it's nice to have options. Okay, next up is Izzy. Izzy says, I am in the middle of my semi-buy regularly listen through the backlog of GNU World Order, and I just re-listened to the episode where you went over coffee from around the world and thought you might want to know about one more. In various militaries around the world, there are ration packs meant to supply a soldier with one day's worth of food called Meals Ready to Eat, or MREs. In the U.S., MREs Oh, in U.S. MREs, there is a small pack of freeze-dried instant coffee that, while certainly not supplying the best cup of coffee, was tolerable enough to get one through the day. The thing I thought was funny about it was that it was best drunk at room temperature, as attempting to heat it up was both a pain if you tried to use the included heater, and accentuated the glorious battery acid flavor of the of the brew. Anyway, just thought it was interesting and thought I'd let you know. I mean, you know... I've said many times before, this is Klaatu, I've said many times before that I am not a coffee snob by any stretch of the imagination. I do love a good cup of coffee, but at the same time, I appreciate lots of different kinds of coffee. And, I mean, to this day, one of my sort of favorite coffees to hate, I guess, is, you know, the classic diner coffee. Because classically, and I stop me if I've told you this one before, but... Um, Classically, when you're in the U.S. at least, and I'm not in the U.S., but when I was in the U.S., where I, where I grew up, when I was there, um, you, you would go to the, a, a diner and and you would sit, or at least I would sit in in a booth or you know at the counter, at the table, whatever, and you'd get a cup of coffee, and it would be pretty good, or it would be really bad, but let's assume it's really good, and then you'd get your second cup of coffee later, and it would be a little bit less good. And then you get your third coffee, and it'd be like, uh, really not very good. And then your fourth, and your fifth, and your sixth, and it just gets down. And, and you realize, after a while, that the reason that the coffee has degrading quality like that is because it's sitting on a burner all, you know, throughout your entire meal. Like, they, they, they just keep pouring coffee out of the same drip um, coffee thing. And so it, it just it sits on the burner under constant heat. And so it's, um, you know, the water is evaporating as it's steaming off as, as it continues to heat. And it just sort of, it just sort of concentrates this coffee into sort of a cooked, sort of semi-burnt flavored drink. And it's really bad. And now sometimes, what I alluded to earlier, you go to the diner and you start out with the really bad coffee. Which actually is a good thing, because you know that if you have that really bad coffee up front that they're gonna that that was the that was the bottom of the barrel so now they're gonna brew a fresh uh pot and so your second cup or your third cup maybe will be really really good so it's this fun lottery system that people in the u.s get to play and you don't really encounter that in my experience anywhere else um that's not entirely true sometimes in new zealand you can go to a really bad cafe a cafe that just doesn't really take pride in their work and you'll get some of the worst espresso or, you know, flat white or whatever you're ordering. And I swear, I think they're cutting corners and just using the same coffee twice. You know, they just, they just make one customer some coffee and then they make another cu- customer some coffee. Something like that. That's my theory. Anyway, um, one more coffee uh, email from Hacker Defo. Uh, he says, you love coffee. We all know that. Now, my country, uh, India, is not really famous for its coffee, but there is a unique post-harvest process that is quite different, to say the least. Try it if you can. Who knows? You might like it. This is crazy, and I don't know how to feel about it because it feels like it would be dangerous, but it's called uh, the Monsoon Malabar, also known as Monsoon Malabar, and it's a process applied to coffee beans in which harvested coffee... coffee you know, beans, the, the beans themselves, are exposed to monsoon rain and winds for the uh, for a period of about three to four months, causing the beans to swell and lose the original acidity, resulting in a flavor profile with a practically neutral pH balance. The coffee is unique to the Malabar coast of Karnataka and Kerala, I probably really mispronounced those, and the Nilgri uh, mountains and um, apparently it's a, a sort of a a big thing uh, in India. It says the brew is heavily bodied, pungent, and considered to be dry with a musty, chocolatey aroma and notes of spices and nuts. That's basically the description of practically every every coffee. If it's not fruity and nutty, then it is uh, chocolatey and spicy, right? Um, anyway, 
that's fascinating. I mean, it sounds, it sounds, um, I guess people aren't out there in the monsoon holding the coffee beans, I guess, but it, it does, it sounds quite exciting, like a, a very, um, sort of a, a very exotic and, and sort of, yeah, I don't know, monsoons. I mean, they're actually quite dangerous, really. So it, it's, you, you know, reading about them sometimes can be, um, slightly, slightly stressful, but I think that does sound interesting. I would, I would definitely be keen to try that. And now, last but not least, this is a big email from Deep Geek. This is, this is really, really exciting stuff. Just, just crazy stuff. It probably deserves, really, this whole thing deserves its own series somewhere. Someone needs to do something about this. But anyway. Deep Geek says, wanted to update you and your listeners on my ongoing experiments with Debian and the idea of immutability. Now remember, this is this is Klaatu again. This is Deep Geek's experiment to sort of emulate basically Fedora Silver, Blue, and uh, what was the other one that someone had just told me about? Micro OS by OpenSUSE, which I still need to try myself, but doing it on Debian. First, to answer your question about file system support for Scheroot, it supports tar, butterfs, LVM, I use ZFS for a couple of reasons. It supports deduplication, and since this involves many copies of duplicate files, that's a big plus. Cloning ability, ZFS can instantly clone and snapshot whole file systems in seconds, which means I can create Chirrut environments that much faster. I have extreme familiarity with the tool. Yes, it's true. DeepGeek uh, has been using ZFS for a long time, has been trying to get me to to use it for ages and I'm I know I'm going to I'm going to start using it eventually I just don't know when and I'm going to love it it's just a matter of when I actually get there anyway back to deepbeak's email the strut man pages discuss using tar to create small files that just generate one use cheroots to run things in and instantly discard the cheroot. So I wanted to relay to you my last adventure with this stuff. I was fooling around compiling an an application in a test environment when I noticed that Debian released a new edition of Stable. They bumped up to Debian 11. I had a reflexive sense of dread as I knew the routine was to reinstall everything and spend a week uh, installing things and tweaking things and discovering a new major problem along the way. Then I remembered I had set up the system with an immutability system, and I realized that this was going to be a true test of, of, of this method. I cleared my system partition uh, for my old system to make room for a new Debian 11 system, and I installed a base system, which promptly crashed. Soon I realized I was trying to install a GPT system onto an MBR, an MBR-style uh, hardware configuration. I had also, I'd also been having problems getting Gparted to work, well, the problem ran much deeper. Turns out that I didn't have any partition table at all. I had been operating for years with just partitions written to disks, and Linux didn't care. I didn't even know that was possible. That's pretty funny. I didn't know that either, actually. But anyway, back to his email. So I booted into my old system Debian 10, which I had because I had committed to keeping the last system around in imitation of Silverblue. I wiped the disk and installed the GPT partition table and reinstalled Debian 11. This worked, as expected. It is Debian old school to start with a base system and add apps and configure those from the ground up. In this way, you leave the cruft of old attempts of trying different applications behind you. This process took me evenings after my day job of about a week. Uh, This is Klaatu again really quick. So what he's really talking about here is kind of the... Well, it's the plague of all Linux users... You know, we we have this, this sort of an insistence that we have to, or I guess maybe even all computer users. Everyone likes to sort of get that fresh start, right? I mean, you get a new OS and you just you you just have to do a fresh start, and 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 yet you get really angry if you can't just do an in-place upgrade. And so there's this push and pull, I think, both internally and among communities and from outside communities of well, does your OS do in-place? upgrades. And if not, well, then your OS isn't very good, is it? And if so, well, I'm never going to use that feature because I want to get a fresh start whenever a new OS comes out. I just, I find that interesting as as a user. Anyway, back to his email. With the new ways of doing things, I mounted the old system on a spare mount point and used notes I took during the install of Debian 10 to quickly issue a couple of giant apt-git install commands. Then I copied configuration styles and directories I still wanted from the old system to the new system. Then I went to my app images, which were all stored in the tilde slash applications directory, and verified that the old version numbers, uh, that the version numbers were all the latest, and copied that folder to my new system. 
I kicked off App Image Launcher Lite in the install mode, and it instantly installed all my app images into the menu system for me. That left one thing. I had a menu system with a bunch of pointers into a ZFS file system of cheroots. I issued the command to ZFS to mount that system, and all my old software and the cheroots therein were now ready to go. Lastly, I rebooted into my old Debian 10 system, which used to be my new system that did great, that did things the immutable way, but was now my new old recovery system. From there, I issued an update file system command to ZFS. I did it from there because I realized that doing it from the new Debian 11 system would lock out my recovery system because ZFS had bumped its features set also. In other words, I had backwards compatibility from the ZFS on Debian 11 to the Debian 10 system, and I knew I had to maintain that. Remember when I said I used to spend an, well, a week of evenings setting up a new system? I spent two evenings this way. One to fix the partition problem, and one to swap the operating system out from my out from under my application to root system. My new system, Debian 11, remains the same with security updates for several years to come, and I can build new production environments in Debian 11 systems in my leisure and without suffering any downtime. I consider this a huge success, but still I feel I have more to learn before documenting things. Thank you again for the ideas. So, I mean, this is Klaatu again. Uh, that That's just such an amazing, amazing story, and it's ongoing, which is even more exciting. I feel like, you know, if I had to be critical of this, I guess I would I would say, well, this is really a patchwork collection of tools. You're using the cheroots, and they kind of only work because you're using ZFS, and then ZFS, you kind of are, are managing it from this other place. And I, I don't know, you know, it feels a little bit disjointed, but at the same time, I don't believe that that's accurate. I think that the, like, this email obviously conflates upgrading from Debian 10 to 11. So that's remove that from the equation for a moment because that's not actually all that important. That I mean that will happen. So it's something it's an eventuality that you have to take into account. But in terms of, you know, the system that he's actually using, it is sort of this combination I think of Cheroot and ZFS. And I think that's kind of the that's the key right there, I think. I, I, I could be missing something, but I, I feel like even Debian in this equation is not actually significant. I mean, it's significant because it's it because it's being done on Debian. But in terms of the idea, I, I feel like it could be ported anywhere, any anything anywhere with ZFS and Chirrut. Well, Chirrut support is just built in, as we've seen in previous episodes. We Chirrut's that's a, a typical thing, but the the ZFS and the and the Chirrut, the marriage between those two and his workflow there, I think that would be the thing that I would really really want to see documented. And um, also, I would just like to know as as much about ZFS as as DeepGeek does because it's it's a real it, it's such a powerful tool, obviously. And I I do need to get I need to start using it, but it's just not it's not way up there on the priority list right now. Let's talk about M4. That's on the priority list. M4 package comes from, I think, GNU. Yes, this is GNU M4, a program that copies input to output, expanding macros in between. That's all M4 does. The package itself includes one binary called M4 and and a bunch of M4 um, example files and um, utility files. So lots of .m4 files, lots of them. And you see the M4 macros at work in... in um, in the auto tool chain like that's a, a, a lot of those um capital f- sort of function names almost that you see in auto tools uh, in like the um the configure.in or the configure.ac file whatever that is um that uses the the m4 macro set so like the ac underscore local underscore init or whatever that is, or just is it just ac underscore init yeah it's just ac underscore init that's a an m4 macro it's it's invoking an m4 macro so it it feels almost a little bit scary and if you go and read a lot of documentation about the m4 system you get a little you know it kind of starts out a lot of the documentation that i've seen starts out really really excited about itself and forgets to kind of introduce you to what they're talking about so it turns out that if you've ever used a macro system ever or at least um yeah well I'll, i'll go with that for now so a macro system ever then you're probably then m4 is going to feel a little bit familiar to you so when i say any macro system ever i'm thinking of unix 
like macros. I, I, I understand that there are macros for like office suites and things like that, which are, I, I guess, apparently sort of dangerous because they can have viruses or something. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Haven't used anything like that before in my life. But the, the, the things like, um, what is it, Jinja, or actually technically Jinja 2, which is the sort of a macro language that gets used a lot of times with Python applications. Uh, the RPM spec file. If you've ever written an RPM spec file, you'll, you'll, you'll know that there are special little macros that you can use that expand into other things. And, and you start to kind of get the hang of it. You start to realize, okay, a macro is a thing. It's a shorthand term for something that's going to, something bigger and better is going to happen. A simple, simple example would be in an RPM spec file, if you are identifying the name of the package that you are building, so you're you're referring to itself, the, the file is referring to itself, sort of, then you use the percent curly brace name, close curly brace. So you don't have to say the name, you don't have to put the name in the file, you just put percent curly brace name, close curly brace, and that always knows to populate that field according to the name of the package. Well, I mean, the name of the package is written in that file, so you do put it in once, but that's it. That's it. You only put it in that once. And the and for name, that's not maybe not maybe not amazing ma- macro. Um, it does help you avoid typos. But for instance, the version. I mean, that's pretty useful because if you have to type in the version once, then that's all you have to type it in. You don't have to type it in ever again because you don't have to go, go you know crawl through the file to find every instance of the version number because you know that all future version numbers are just going to be percent curly brace version close curly brace and it gets more elaborate there are steps like percent prep and percent setup and percent build and percent install and all these other things that that represent a whole whole sequence of commands like dot slash config or, or actually even tar xf path to file and then dot slash config your uh, and then make and then make install and so on so it can be uh, pretty complex so in other words I mean if you really think about it in Slackware terms I mean if you look at a Slack build file uh, you, we could we could kind of say that anytime we're using variables and there are lots of variables in a Slack build file in a way that's a macro and um, I remember in in Slack I think it was I think it was Slacks actually S L A X which used to be based on Slackware, it's based on Debian now, but it used to be based on Slackware. It was a USB thumb drive distro, boot boot from your USB thumb drive, that sort of thing. Uh, they had a hybrid version of Slack build, which I think, I don't remember the name of it. I, I, I want to just say it was, I don't know, Slack's builds or something like that, but um, it was a hybrid version. And I say hybrid because they, they essentially broke down common steps in a Slack build file into macros. And, and you could use them. So there were things like, and I don't remember the exact terms, but things like unarchive. And you knew that that would take the source file that you specified over in the source field, and it would unarchive it and move it to a special new directory called, um, you know, source. And it would unarchive, or it, it would change directory into there. And now you're ready for the next step. And the next step maybe would be macroized as well, and you could tell it to build or whatever, and you know, you knew that that would mean a dot slash configure, a make, but not the make install, because that would be the next macro, and so on. So it was kind of actually kind of nice. I mean, it was, I say it was nice, because it was convenient, in terms of being, I guess, um, not transparent, but educational, maybe less so. And I think that's a drawback of macros, is that they do kind of make things magical. You find a macro, you don't know what it is, all you know is that it was in the file, and if you put it in the file and run the file, then then the thing that you want to have happen happens. So that can be a little bit of, I guess, a downside to macros. But the the payoff is that if you if you know what you want done and you know how it is normally done, and you just don't want to go through all of those steps, then a macro is a great a great way to to shorten that process. So I'm going to make a demo directory here called m4, and I'm going to change into that directory, and I'm going to call, I'm going to make a macro called hello.m4. And in this macro, I'm going to use a keyword called define, and I'm going to say define, and now this is where the syntax gets a little bit tricky, 
And instead of a quote, you do a back tick. Or is that a back tick? Yeah, a back tick. And then you type in some word. So let's do um, c uh, let's do computer. No, let's do here. We'll, we'll do this. We'll do Windows. And then we'll do a comma, space, back tick. And of course, we'll do Linux, close quote, close parentheses. So we've just defined one term, which is Windows. I guess I should make that a capital W. Uh, Windows. And then we've defined another term, Linux. And if you if you imagine where I might be going with this, you'll probably get the idea of what's of sort of what's going on. Next line, I'm going to say, I sure do love. And I'll type in the word Windows. And that's the file. So if I launch this file, or if I if I parse this file, I guess m4. If I process this file with the command m4 space hello m4, I see in my terminal I sure do love Linux, which is a lot more accurate. So the m4 macro define, or, or rather I've just created an m4 macro with the keyword define and some strings that I want to sort of swap out for each other, and then I've processed that with m4. Now typically you're not going to write your macro into your in, into the file that you're that, that you want to, to, to affect. You'll have a macro somewhere on your hard drive, and then you'll include it in the document that you want to have processed. So for instance, I'm going to reopen hello.m4, and I'm going to remove this line about loving this operating system. And so now all I've got in hello.m4 is define, parentheses, not a quote, but a backtick, windows, close quote, comma, not a, uh, another backtick, uh, Linux, close quote, close parentheses, and that's it. That's the macro. I've just defined, I've just done a, a string substitution. Now I'm going to create a new file called Emacs, uh, I'm going to, in Emacs, I'm going to create a new file called test.m4. And in test.m4, I'm going to write include, parentheses, backtick, hello.m4, close quote, close parentheses. And then I'm going to type my line, I sure do love this operating system that I referred to earlier. And... Now I could just do m4 test.m4 and I get I sure do love Linux on in the terminal. Now for me in real life, uh, I think that the m4 macro idea is is quite appealing because a lot of times when I'm doing a, a tutorial or something like that, I, I, I want to refer back to some common phrase, whether it's just uh, for a, I don't know, for, for more information on this particular command, go see the document at this website or, or so on. And I feel like macro M4 processing could make could make it quite easy to just come up with strings that would then get swapped out. Now, I mean, to be fair, that's also entirely possible with just I don't know some sed scripts or something like that. So I mean, it's not it's not revolutionary the way that I'm <laughs> thinking of using the M4 uh, macros. But there are lots of other things that you can do, and there are lots of other keywords in macros other than define. Uh, there are if defs, uh, which would look for, you know, if this value is defined, then do this thing, and otherwise do something else. You can divert uh, input and output to different places based on values. You can test whether a macro is defined. You can do if-else um, um, clauses in your M4. Iteration, uh, you know, all, it's it's... It's a, I guess, a lightweight, arguably lightweight, uh, programming sort of language, really. So there's there's a lot to be explored here, and it's the the manual. Once you understand what I've just said, which is that that M4 essentially parses files and and looks for a something that's been defined and then swaps it out for something else, then you can do all kinds of other things. You can do arithmetic. You can do if else logic. You can you know, do all the fancy things. So check out the man page, or not the man page, the manual, the, the big manual online, gnu.org slash software slash m4 slash manual slash m4.html or in your info um, uh, system, info m m4. You'll get all the information you need about, I think most importantly, what what the the keywords available to you are when you are writing your own macro because obviously that's the that's the key is is what can you make m4 do in a macro file 
and and what's the what's the syntax of 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 the uh, of what you want to do of what like, how do you make it do and if and if else how do you make it do iteration and and arithmetic and substitution and so on it's in the manual you can find out what kind of functions are available to you and then you can start making your own macros and swap out all kinds of things based on all kinds of conditions is it the best macro language out there i don't know it's old it is arguably being mostly maintained and sort of kept alive by the GNU project. I don't know that anyone else really makes use of of M4 outside of the GNU project. But I mean, it, it you know, sometimes age is is a feature. That's what you want is an old reliable tool that doesn't really change anymore. I mean, I do I've enjoyed the times that I've spent with Jinja too. Some of the quoting is a little bit weird. You know, whether there are advantages to one over the other, who knows? I don't know. And it probably depends largely on on your workflow and toolchain. M4, it's kind of got that same advantage as uh, Groff and and those kinds of tools. It's just such an old and low-level and built-in kind of thing that you're not likely to come across a Linux distribution without that toolchain either readily available or just pre-installed. Anyway, that's it for uh, this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Just do a normal day's work.